the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is. And welcome back as we head into hour two of our daily three-hour show. It's a delight to welcome back really a very good and old friend, someone I haven't seen in a long time, but we have every time he publishes something as important as what he published uh, today in National Review. I'm, of course, talking about Stanley Kurtz, a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. And about a year ago, we had him on uh, talking about a huge report he did on um, the lost history of Western civilization. Uh, As if to make things worse, not better, Congress is now engaging itself in federal legislation with an anodyne-titled bill called the Civic Secures Democracy Act, which is pretty much um, summarized best, I think, by um, Paul Mirangoff at Powerline. It's the America Doomed Act. Stanley Kurtz, welcome back to the Airwaves of Phoenix. How are you, my friend? I'm great, sir. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, well, you're you're welcome. I, you know, I I sometimes say tongue in cheek. I wish I didn't have to with certain guests. <laughs> you know what I mean by that? I mean it of as a course. compliment. But you highlight things that are, you know, going to be missed if you don't highlight them, Stanley. And then we'll look back ten years from now and say, how did this happen? As we're looking back right now, and you're. Tell us about the Civic Secures Democracy Act, um, and tell us about Action Civics. Well, that's really the magic word, Seth, Action Civics. And I would bet you that even now, 99% of conservatives have never even heard of Action Civics. Certainly, uh, almost no one has heard of it a few months ago. But for several years now, uh, liberals, progressives, uh, leftists, whatever you want to call them, have been uh, co-opting traditional civics into something they call action civics. Now, what does that mean? It actually just means getting K-12 school children to go out and do political protests, even literal lobbying, where they would go to the state legislature and say lobby for um, a gun control bill or something resembling the Green New Deal on the state or the federal level. And this they slap the label of civics on this. Because they're really, learning about how a bill or they're engaging in, in legislation uh, activity or something, right? Learning how this state legislature works, theoretically, I suppose, right? And you have to right. take your hat off to these leftists yeah. who are clever <laughs> enough to say, oh, that's what we'll do. We'll say they're learning civics right. at the very moment they're uh, doing something very anti-civic, really, which is breaking the what should be the neutrality of the K-12 classroom and indoctrinating students and getting them uh, to do political protests on uh, for school credit. And so now, not only is this being done, and not only has it been even mandated in uh, Illinois and Massachusetts, but now there's a federal bill, two federal bills, actually, one for $30 million and one for a billion dollars. A billion dollars uh, is this Civic Secures Democracy Act, uh, which would be nice if it were actually civics, but instead the money is going to go for this action civics, these 
protests and demonstrations, and whatever money doesn't go in that direction will almost certainly be channeled toward teaching critical race theory in the schools. So this is really a leftist indoctrination bill that is being given the um, very misleading name of civics. Yeah, and, 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 and the quiet part of this bill out loud is where it talks about improving knowledge and engagement among traditionally underserved students to close gaps in knowledge and achievement among students of different income, racial, and ethnic and native language groups. This gets us right into the heart and soul of critical race theory, doesn't it, Stanley? Absolutely, Seth. And the words by themselves don't sound like right. they would. Who, would, who could be against this, possibly? Who right? could be against right. helping uh, traditionally underserved students and removing achievement gaps? But you'll find if you look at the critical race theory curricula and teaching standards, like, say, the standards that just passed in Illinois, these, these are standards that force teachers to uh, affirm that America is a systemically racist country, to affirm that there are many genders and the gender is fluid. They encourage teachers to grade students not by their achievement, but by their political activism. And yet all of this is sold to the public on the grounds that it will uh, be more uh, received with more excitement by traditionally underserved students and help remove achievement gaps and recruit uh, minorities into the teaching corps. And so uh, what we see in the bill are the justifications that sound so nice, but what will actually happen when the Biden Education Department disperses the money is that it will go to these uh, radical critical race theory groups. Oh, I can tell you right now, as you would probably either guess or know, since you know things about five minutes before everyone else, Stanley, I would guess right now Ibrahim Kendi is working on this curriculum for this act. I bet. Model curriculum. <laughs> he's, uh, uh, what's the, he's created it, and these are the people who are for this act specialize in, in turning Ibram X. Kendi into bite-sized curricular units. Right. So I agree with you about that. And Ibram Kendi actually is paid massive sums of money to go and and give um, uh, critical race theory training to teachers in K-12 schools. So he will surely um, be someone who benefits from this, and so will all of his followers. So this really is a uh, leftist, radical leftist educator full employment act. I once had a foreign relations professor on the left, international relations professor, who said that the big year that changed the big years that changed everything were basically 1952 to 1956. When you look at Iran, Suez, other things, and it seems to me the big years that changed everything in education in America were the mid to late 80s. Um, and I say that because, as you continually point out, for the most part, colleges and the federal government stayed out of each other's business outside of the loan business. Um, and then came the curricular wars that were kicked off probably more famously than anywhere else at Stanford circa 1987. Mm -hmm. And then what happened, it seems like, Stanley, with not enough people taking that seriously – is colleges and elementary and secondary schools realized we're training our kids for these colleges. Let's train them in the stuff that gets them into these colleges with these new new curricula. And the battleground became elementary and secondary schools. 
And so a lot of us started working on on high school curricula. And then we learn out, son of a you-know-what? They're now training kindergartners and preschoolers. I mean, this stuff is deep and wide. It's wide and deep, not just at the universities. We all know conservative groups that work in the universities. We're talking nursery and kindergarten now, aren't we, Stanley? Absolutely. It has percolated down, as you, just as you say, over the years from the colleges and universities where it first took hold to K-12. And, of course, that's because students graduated from the colleges and universities after they had their courses from the left as professors, and many of them became teachers. And so it has absolutely uh, percolated down. Now, it won't surprise, I think, most of your listeners that for some time K-12 has leaned left if they've looked carefully at the textbooks or seen how many schools assign Howard Zinn or such. But what we're getting now from Congress is an attempt to sort of uh, finish the job, as they say, because you still have school districts uh, in conservative areas outside of big cities or in red states that, to some degree at least, resist this trend. But the federal government is hoping, or rather the Democrats who are pushing this, are hoping to use the power of the federal government to effectively force a curriculum on everyone. They want to hold out grants for millions and millions of dollars that states can sign up to as long as they uh, promise to do this action civics and effectively the critical race theory And then once the state has done it, they want the state to write it into the state standards. And then every district in the state would have to do it. Uh, And so this this federal bill is, in addition to being a big pot of money, it will be deployed in such a way as to try to force a leftist curriculum even onto red districts so that that the holdouts will be eliminated. You know, uh, that's right. So the the notion that um, – let's see. How can I put this? The notion – can you stay a while? I have to take a quick oh, break. Sure. Do you have a little time for me? Mm-hmm. You're in Washington, D.C. There's not much else to do, is there? <laughs> that's true. Okay. That's true. You're, you're, on, you're in a garrison state guarded by the uh, national security. I'm well, well protected. Yes. Okay. <laughs> let me take Nothing this, much is going on. Let me take this obscene commercial break and come back with Dr. Stanley Kurtz from the Ethics and Public Policy Center. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. We are talking, delighted to have, privileged to have, and talking with uh, Stanley Kurtz, Senior Fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Please, I beg of you, I don't, I don't do this very often, I beg of you to read his piece at National Review, The Greatest Education Battle of Our Lifetime. Stanley, right before the break, you had said that if this passes, this act passes, that you're writing about here, the... Um, the uh, Civic Secures Democracy Act, that, you know, not even South Dakota will be able to resist it um, because of the way the financials will work out and the pressures put upon it. Let me ask you a big cultural question before we get back and drill down more into what's embedded in this bill, because I'm curious, and if if memory serves, you know, you were trained in in sort of anthropological sciences. Mm -hmm. I was having a discussion I don't have the the liberty of using this person's name, but you and I both know 
of a of a big thinker in Washington D.C. about the times we're living in. And he said, in some respects, I think what we're going through now, at least socially and intellectually, is worse or bigger than the Civil War of the 1860s, because in a sense, it was about one thing back then. Whereas here, we are such a divided nation on so many things. He said, for example, in those days, a child in a school in New York would have been reading what a child would have been reading the same thing a child in South Carolina would have been reading. That's not true anymore. Or is it? Um, you know, th- th- this would change that. It, it, I, I think of Spartanburg. Let's take Spartanburg, South Carolina. Let's assume that they have a good conservative curricular, which is an assumption we shouldn't make, but let's assume it for the moment. This would change all that. Oh, I think you're exactly right, uh, Seth. Um, we're we're headed to a situation where some of these states. Uh, Minnesota, North Carolina, California with its ethnic studies curriculum, they're starting to put out these radical leftist um, standards. Now, in the blue states, they'll put those in and they'll hold. But in the purple states, I think you're going to get a situation where a Republican governor comes in and you're going to totally rewrite the standards toward a more traditional way of teaching history, and then a Democratic governor comes in and you're going to write it the other way. Personally, I would prefer more emphasis on local control, uh, not even at the state level, but at the district level, that would help resolve some of that. But the battle is taking place now at the state level. And I would say that, well, it's certainly true that the feds are trying to force this new leftist stuff under the Democrats. They're going to try to push that on every state. It is theoretically conceivable for some states to resist. You take, say, Common Core... Texas refused to sign up to that. And one thing I have is um, model legislation that would actually ban action civics. That could be passed by a state. And I haven't announced it yet, but there is a very um, important and influential state where they've just introduced a bill that would ban action civics. And that would make it impossible for the leftist bureaucrats in the state to apply for these federal funds. So I think we're going to see a big battle. But yes, I agree. I think the country, uh, the, the root of our problem is that we, uh, we have divided in, into um, camps that have fundamentally different cultural assumptions. And going back to your point about the fellow who was talking about the Civil War, I do think there was a, a large, relatively large degree of consensus in the country, except on the critically right. important issue on one issue, slavery. on one big issue. That's I mean, right. it, it was huge, but that was that was one. Now it's almost everything. Exactly. Which takes me kind of to a slightly related point. Back to my in the previous segment, Stanley Kurtz, when I was talking about how 19, the 1980s were really maybe the the, the 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 touchstone of the springboard for so many of these fights we're waging now or waking up to, you know that was the same era when E. D. Hirsch, I think it was eighty seven, came out with that cultural literacy concept and book. Uh, he's still around. He's older now, and you know a, a little, you know, not as engaged. Mm-hmm. That that would that didn't hold. You know that it it didn't take. This does. Um, you know, I thought that was the strong horse. Mm-hmm. Turns out it wasn't. Uh, cultural literacy, 
uh, Western civilization, the kinds of stuff that made this country and this culture so great, turns out not to be the stronger horse compared to the advocates on behalf of uh, things like 1619 and critical race theory. Isn't that kind of interesting? I think you're right on that, although I would say this about Hirsch, although I think Hirsch is, I mean, I loved him at the time, and I think there's a tremendous amount of good to say about Hirsch. But he used to say famously that uh, he was practically a socialist, he would say, and yet he was for this. And I think that, in a way, shows a bit of a problem. You can have... Uh, if you 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 and I can know what AOC and Ilhan Omar know in terms of certain cultural pieces of knowledge, and still disagree about some very very fundamental things, right? And so you have to go beyond just having even a common language in the sense of knowing what certain things mean. If you don't have a real knowledge of the underlying principles of the founding and what they mean and why they're good then it's not going to work, and that's what we've lost in half the country. Someone like Hirsch claims to be a socialist, but he would design an entirely different curricula than AOC or Ilan Omar in a sense. He would still let kids teach. He would learn. He would think it important that they be taught Shakespeare, the founding, that sort of thing. There's kind of been a shift even in the left, if I might. You talk about You know, education wars going back as far as 1951 with William Buckley's first book, God and Man at Yale. Right. Mm -hmm. Think of it this way. Take 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 the first issue of National Review where Buckley's essay, famously the credenda on what National Review was founded to stand against. He actually mentions Henry Steele Commager as part of the problem. This is why we're here, because Henry Steele Commager is uh, is uh, is important is 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 credible is powerful i i i keep thinking about that stanley because i i keep thinking about henry stillcomager being one of the co-authors of one of the greatest american history textbooks we've ever had he wrote it with samuel Eliot morrison and what we wouldn't give to have that textbook in our yes. classrooms today, right? In the 50s, that was the problem. That was what leftist socialism was. I would, I would, I would die for that in our schools today. That's how far the left has moved. If you're taking my point a little bit, it's just an irony of, of, of leftist history in a sense, isn't it? Can, oh, can, I agree. can I keep you on that point oh, as I yes. had another break? All right. I'd love you to respond to that. Mm-hmm. I, I just thought you'd find that kind of fun. Yes. Uh, we'll be right back with more from Stanley Kurtz. Folks, you've got to read his piece at National Review, The Greatest Education Battle of Our Lifetimes. I believe he's right that it is. The Feds, Congress, is engaging in something called the Civics Secures Democracy Act of 2021. It will scuttle democracy if it passes. Through our schools. Allen Ginsberg said to Norman Poe and Horitz, we will get you through your children. They didn't get Norman's kids, but they got an awful lot of others, and they haven't stopped. This is where the battle is. I'm Seth Leibson. He's Stanley Kurtz. We'll be back with more in a moment. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. We're talking to Stanley Kurtz who uh, has a very important piece uh, about a piece of legislation in Congress that has the potential to radically alter every school in this country. 
his piece is called The Greatest Education Battle of Our Lifetimes. So I was just making kind of an interesting, I thought, uh, historical, intellectual, uh, ideological point that when you look at the battles in the 1950s and what the conservative movement was arrayed against, the threat was Henry Steele Commager, as William Buckley put it. Today, what we wouldn't do for Henry Steele Commager's textbook. Um, in a way, I mean, in a way, you know, the 1987 year, again, um, the year of closing of the American mind, which you were so instrumental in promoting by Alan Bloom, then a liberal Democrat, what would what we wouldn't do for an Alan Bloom these days, right? I well, mean, it's weird. Also, I'd give another example just to reinforce what you said, but then I'll, I'll say what I think went wrong, so to speak. But to, just to reinforce your point, if we go back to Arthur Schlesinger's yep. Yep. book, yep. The, you know, and that the Disuniting was of America. Disuniting of America about 30 years ago. Yep. Well, under the Kennedy administration, right. Schlesinger was considered to be the extreme liberal yeah. wing of the White House. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, so, but what I think went wrong was that where we really made a fundamental break that went way beyond the ordinary liberal conservative split was when these academic theorists started uh, creating variations on Marxism. You go back to, and I include postmodernism in that, you go back to Marx, Marx basically said, look, the whole idea of liberal democracy, of freedom, as you have been taught this, is a lie. The workers aren't really free. They're the playthings of the capitalists. They have no real freedom of choice. So the idea of democracy and freedom of, and liberty is just a nice little story that's being told to disguise <laughs> the power of the capitalist. <laughs> now, if you look at the whole idea of white privilege, white supremacy, uh, or postmodernism puts this in a more abstract way, and it says that the ideas of liberty and freedom are just part of power. It just uses this general word, power. But what the current critical race theory does is to bring that down, call it white supremacy. So when we see some of these shout-downs at the universities, you literally see students shouting, free speech is white supremacy. And you see signs, um, equal justice is white supremacy at some of the law school shout-downs. This is all a variation on Marx's original idea, which rejects in total the authenticity of the fundamental ideas of liberty and equality behind classical liberalism and our constitutional system. So when that started percolating through, and that's what Bloom was picking up, and that was what was behind the Stanford business, when that started percolating, the differences between the right and the left became a gigantic chasm. Is there a liberal left anymore in academia? I, I don't think there's much of one, but there's a little more than we might think, okay. because I do, I actually think, and I don't have my uh, it on my fingertips, but I have seen survey data that is similar to this, both in the general public and even, I think, in academia, that basically there is a faction of liberals who don't agree with the woke, illiberal left, but basically they're intimidated into silence just like conservatives are and that the actual forces of woke, if you will, are, are a minority numerically. But as in the French Revolution, they're an active minority, and 
people are afraid to answer back for fear of being called racist. It's easier to just keep your head down. And so in this way, somehow a minority manages to lord it over the majority, chiefly because the majority does share classical liberalism, and the worst accusation you could have if you believe in freedom and equality is that you're some kind of racist. So you don't even want to have to deal with the accusation. And so I think we actually are dealing with a battle we can win here if we organize the forces in the middle and on the right against the woke left. I think we can win if we create a situation where people see that uh, they agree with each other that this woke stuff is wrong and oppressive and bad. I think there's a possibility of winning. Stanley, will win to the degree that you lead us and keep teaching us. I really appreciate you staying on this. God bless you for doing it. Thank you for spending some of your afternoon with us. Yeah, you bet. And I'll work with you and our legislature here to do anything you want. Uh, We have a lot of similar friends here. Wonderful. Let's talk about it. You bet. Stanley Kurtz, bless you, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. The cancel culture is, um, let us say, part of the big tech arm and the social media arm of the left. The woke ideology is, in part, using critical race theory to weaponize the pedagogical, the teaching, the education arm And Antifa is the militant arm of the woke ideology. I could draw that out on a graph, but being on talk radio probably won't won't get that job done. But understand that woke socialist leftism has, by my count, about three main departments of war. The streets, Antifa, critical race theory in education, and cancel culture at the social media and big tech level. Um, Maybe I should write that up. But when these things combine, it becomes such a toxic confluence such that they are now trying to cancel Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson, who said about the riots on January 6th, he wasn't that terribly worried about his own safety. Then he said, quote, now had the tables been turned, this could get me in trouble, had the tables been turned, And President Trump won the election, and those were tens of thousands of Black Lives Matter and Antifa protesters, I might have been a little more concerned. They're going after him for saying he wasn't concerned about whites. He was only concerned about Black Lives Matter, blacks. It's not what he said. It's not the quote. The quote is, had the tables been turned, 
This could get me in trouble had the tables been turned and President Trump won the election, and those were tens of thousands of Black Lives Matter and Antifa protesters, I might have been a little concerned. What color is Antifa? Well, they don't like that part of the quote. So the tactic becomes denying the existence of Antifa. Joe Biden has said it's an idea, not an organization. The chairman of the Judiciary Committee of the House of Representatives, Jerry Nadler, said it's a myth. And this morning, Joy Behar said it didn't exist. Well, Prager, you did a smart thing, and it went to a former member. Let's listen to this former member of Antifa, Gabrielle Nadalis. There was a time in my life when I was angry, bitter, and deeply unhappy. I wanted to lash out at the whole fascist system, the greedy, heartless power structure that didn't care about me or the rest of society's innocent victims, a system that had robbed, beaten, and stolen from my ancestors. The whole corrupt edifice deserved to be brought down, reduced to rubble. I was a perfect recruit for Antifa, the left-wing group which claims to fight against fascism. And so, I became a member. Now I was one of those who had the guts to fight against the fascists who were exploiting disadvantaged people. I wasn't a card-carrying anti-fascist. There's no such thing as an official Antifa membership. But I was ready at a moment's notice to slip on the black mask and march in what Antifa calls the Black Bloc, a cadre of other black-clad Antifa members to taunt police and destroy property. Antifa stands for anti-fascist, but that's purposely deceptive. For one thing, the very name is calibrated so that anyone who dares to criticize the group or its tactics can be labeled fascist. This allows Antifa to justify violence against all who dare stand up or speak out against them. A few groups boldly declare themselves Antifa, like Rose City Antifa in Portland, but most don't, preferring to avoid the negative publicity. That's part of Antifa's appeal and strength. It's hard to pin down. There is no identifiable leader. To be part of Antifa, you must adopt two basic principles. First, you have to have the mentality of an anti-fascist. And second, you must be willing to enforce that mentality. To adopt an anti-fascist mentality means to reject everything that is fascism. But that begs the question, what is fascism? While most Americans associate fascism with Nazi Germany or modern dictatorial states like Venezuela, China, and North Korea, to Antifa, Fascism means Judeo-Christian values and capitalism. As an Antifa group said on its Twitter account in 2018, the fight against fascism is only won when the capitalist system is smashed. And they mean smashed. Breaking windows, tearing down statues, throwing Molotov cocktails, looting and burning businesses, and harassing and physically assaulting people. We saw it all in the summer of 2020 in Portland, Seattle, Minneapolis, and other cities. Antifa is not solely responsible for all left-wing political violence. Not every attack by left-wing radicals is an Antifa attack. But Antifa exemplifies the worst of this dangerous ideology, which is becoming bolder and more prevalent in American society. Joining Antifa was the worst decision of my life. How did I get out of it? Like anyone who gets out of something bad, I encountered something good. The very system that I had sought to destroy. Friends. People who turned out to be my real friends pointed me to challenging thinkers like Milton Friedman, Thomas Sowell, 
and Ben Shapiro, and eventually organizations like the Leadership Institute and PragerU. What they said just made sense, and offered me a better way to live. Antifa and the radical left did not care about building a better society; they cared about control. They could only offer me more anger, bitterness, and unhappiness. I always expected to keep my past a secret, but as I saw cities around the country struggling against the rise of left-wing political violence, while left-wing and even liberal politicians said nothing, I knew I had to speak up. If people like me, who know what is really behind Antifa, don't, the left will obliterate what it means to be a free American. So here I am, and here's my message: Young people don't drift to the left because they believe the left is superior. Most do because they have never been exposed to anything else. Leftism has become what Andrew Breitbart once described as the default position. The American idea is more powerful than you think. It turned me around. It can turn others around too. The core of that idea, call it the American dream, is not about money. It's about freedom. That, ultimately, is the reason Antifa has to resort to violence. Because if conservatives are allowed to speak freely. They will peacefully convert more and more of Antifa supporters towards the values of liberty, and then Antifa will vanish like the nightmare it is. I'm Gabriel Nadalis, the student rights advocate for the Leadership Institute and author of Behind the Black Mask: My Time as an Antifa Activist for Prager University. And that's why they're going after freedom of speech. They don't want you reading Friedman and Soul. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. The Holmans will be with us. We're going to do some interesting policy, politics, and other stuff with them when they get here in、uh, just a few minutes. Let's finish the hour with Jeff in Phoenix. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Seth. How's it going? Good. How are you? Great. Hey, I just wanted to a、uh, couple things, quick things. First, you know, we we're talking about music. I don't know if you know it. I don't know if you like Van Mor or Van Morrison. I do, but、uh, he actually has, and he's just written and put out. Three songs about anti going anti lockdown. Yeah, he did so, it with.、Uh, didn't he do it with someone else? Eric, Eric, Eric Clapton. Eric right, right, right,、yeah. right. Yeah, yeah who knew Eric Clapton、yeah. had that in him? Well, there's some controversy about that if you read some of the things that、oh. Eric, he just sang the song, but he's not necessarily an anti lockdown guy. Or whatever,、oh, okay. But you know, who knows? Who knows? I mean, everybody says anything on the internet anyway. But. I would say that's a conservative song. If you got a song against the lockdown, yeah, 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 yeah. Van Morrison's as rock and roll as it gets. Yeah, you bet. More,、mm-hmm. more power to you. A little、him. better than Bob Dylan. So, Thank you for that. Yeah. So one more thing.、Uh, just one thing about Andy Paul, and then one one thing about Andy Biggs. Andy Biggs.、Uh, I heard him on your show last week, and I, I've been trying to get through to him and、uh, ask him a, a, a question because、uh, are you familiar with Officer, Officer Stetnik、uh, from the Capitol Police? Of course. Passed away. Of course. All the controversy. Yeah. There's、sure. controversy about. Yeah. For, in the beginning, it was hit in the head with a fire extinguisher.、Yep. Now it's he's been bear sprayed, and that was the. Result, blah blah blah. Well, on January eighth, two days after this happened, Andy Biggs put on his Twitter, and it's still there. I I went and looked at it the other day. Go back to January eighth. That Officer Setnick was murdered, and it's like that's just a it, to me. It's just another example of how they take we take something before we know the facts, and we just run with it. Before we know exactly, what he may happened, not even know it's still up. And there were there were new facts that came to light. You're absolutely right. I will let him know. I'm betting they don't even remember putting it up. 
best well, case. I would really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, I'll, get, I'll, I'll, I'll deal with that. You bet. I mean, dealing with, dealing, definitely dealing with his death and all that stuff and out and, and, uh, I can I can I can't speak for Andy, but I'm going to guess that yeah. he, like me, like you, doesn't know how Officer Swetnick died. Right, and that's my, that's my whole point. Yeah, yeah. Let's not put out there something that yeah. can inflame other people or whatever. Yeah. Let's not buy. Now, do remember when it came out? I mean, that was the official story, so I don't blame anyone for following it. But you're right. You're right. It's it's right. now been it's well, now it's now been still, not the official. It's now no longer they still true. Haven't released right. an autopsy. Yeah. I mean, why not? Right. You know. Right. Come on. Right. Anyway, and the last thing was. You know, I have a first-hand story. My wife was actually in Seattle. Uh, it's probably been nine months now or so. And first two nights of the start of the riots in Seattle, she was in a hotel in Seattle, and she texted me a picture of the Cheesecake Factory burning below her so she could see it, and then SWAT teams and filing down the streets and stuff like that. I mean, the fact that these people don't realize that this is true, real violence oh, yeah. going on Oh, there, yeah. Hey, uh, Jeff, do you have my email? Yeah. Do me a favor and send me the screenshot so I'll send it to Biggs' person. Oh, yeah. Okay. Will do. Uh, All right. Thanks, brother. We'll fix it. Fixing things one listener at a time. We'll be right back.